Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time that we have in your word, and I pray that as we walk through this passage again, we've spent several weeks already dissecting it in chunks and pieces, you would continue to help us to build in our confidence in your word, you help us to see that no matter what we're going through, um, you're right there with us, not just because you have to, but because you love us and you want to be with us and you want to be connected to us in deeper and abiding ways, and when that happens, we finally find freedom. We finally find the truth. We finally find our place in your creation. Help us to do that, Lord. We love you. Amen. I do want to remind you as well, if you haven't signed up for the wake-up call, you should have weeks ago. Um, and if you haven't, it's not too late. Every day you get an email, and it's, it's a, a devotion that breaks down a little bit of what we're discussing. So there's a daily email that you receive. And it starts off with a prayer, and it has kind of a, a, a piece-by-piece unpacking of this passage. And so if you go to seedbed.com, I actually, this is an old slide, I didn't, I had it. It's seedbed.com slash wakeup call without the dash. If you go to seedbed.com, you'll find it. But if it's slash wakeup call, and then you'll be able to get in there, and it has all kinds of stuff um, for you to read each and every day. There's a part of the Word reflection and then there's a, a prayer that's a written out prayer for you to pray and then there's some questions to kind of walk you through the rest of your day some stuff to dwell on it's been very um, helpful for me the last several weeks it's pretty cool it shows up and I mean I've been a part of those before where you have a daily devotion and the Bible app has daily plans for you to read through the scriptures and those are all fantastic but um, there's been something about this reading this while also coinciding with Sunday mornings has been pretty amazing. So it's not too late. We've got several weeks to go before Easter, so jump in if you want. Oh, that's fancy. Okay, today we're going to focus in on Jesus' response, and each and every one of his responses to the temptations of Satan starts off with, it is written, except for the last one, and that's an interesting thing that we'll kind of tweak and dig into a little bit. But in the passage, um, we see that Jesus responds to Satan. That Satan, he, Jesus is taken by the Spirit into the desert, and then Satan is there to tempt him, and Jesus responds. And his response is with the very Word of God. And so we get to see, like you should be, when, when we read this and Satan's tempting Jesus, as Darwin talked about last week, there's all these connections to the 40 days in the desert, there's all these connections to, that are reflections back. And so what you're seeing is Jesus doing what the people of God couldn't do. And so after the 40 years in the wilderness and all the temptations that existed in there, then you have the retelling, the reteaching of the law in the book of Deuteronomy that's given to Moses. And so it's after all of the failed attempts by the people of God to do what they're supposed to do and all their rebellion in the 40 years, and then you get the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy should have, the people of God should have been, gosh, we had it, we escaped exile, we got out of Egypt, we're there, like we, God loves us, he's given us manna from heaven, this is amazing, and then Moses gives them the law, because this, the old generation has died, and the new generation needs to hear the law again, needs to hear the promises of God again. And so after all of that, they're given the book of Deuteronomy, and the promises, you would think, people would go, yes, God has saved us, he's, he's protected us, he's given us the law again, it's renewed, it's refreshed, and the people of God would obey God for the rest of their life. Well, they didn't. We all know they didn't. Israel rebelled and rejected God again. 
And so that's part of the story of the Old Testament into the New, is the constant promise of God, even with his rebellious creation, pushing him aside. And so Jesus lands, and he gives us a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of a window into what it takes and what is necessary to be better than Adam and Eve, to be better than the people in exile, to be better than the nation of Israel as it continued to rebel. And he draws us to the word. He draws us to those promises. And he has a conversation with Satan, which that's not what we should do. We do not enter into debate with the enemy. We run from him. It is written is a way for the enemy to be confounded, the enemy to be confused, the enemy to not know what's happening. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And we get into the first temptation. But first, I wanted to kind of bring up and point out um, we don't know, like I've always read this text in one way, I think, well, a couple ways. One, I always assumed that the temptations happened at the end of the 40 days. That's always been my assumption. Now, I approached that and I looked at it two different ways. Um, as I believe Darwin mentioned, and I think maybe even Isaac did, um, the, the phrase when Satan encounters Jesus, if you're the son of God, is sometimes translated by some Greek experts as since you're the son of God. And so you have two things happening here, where is it if the son of God? Is Satan trying to question, like, are you really, like, a nah, 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 are you really the son of God? Or is it Satan showing his authority? Since you're the son of God, both are dastardly. One is questioning his identity, and the other is questioning his authority. And however you read it, it's fine. I don't think it's a mistranslation either way. But however you read it, it shows that Satan is trying to chip away at the identity of who Jesus is. He knows, he, he knows who he is, but he's trying to put on display for all of us like one last ditch thing. So think of who Satan is. He was the worship leader of heaven. And when he rebelled and wanted worship to be turned to him, a third of the angels fell from heaven. He wanted that power and authority, and he wanted to be worshipped himself. And now he's trying to tempt the very Son of God, God in flesh, with the same thing. Be like me. Come over here. Be like me. I rejected God, so can you, even though you're God in flesh and you're part of the Trinity. Like He's attempting to, to thwart <clears throat> the very authority of who Jesus is. And so he says, and so the second part, I don't know when these temptations happened in the 40 days. I always assumed when I read it at first glance that it was at the end. But it says, in the, spirit, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It doesn't say being tempted by the devil at the end. So there could be several temptations consistent throughout it all. It could be that Jesus was put into the desert for his time of quiet and solitude and fasting and prayer so that he'd be prepared for the temptations. Sometimes that's good for us too. We can push it all away. The Spirit led Jesus into the Jordan to be tempted. Satan enters into this place and starts giving him some ideas. Starts picking away at his mind, trying to get him to reject the very power and love of God. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to be bread. And <clears throat> Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
he's hungry. Is it 40 whole days or is it just two weeks? It's hard for me to go a day without eating something. Right? I mean, you put two, three days in, like Darwin shared yesterday or last week, <clears throat> that five days in, the hunger pains kind of subside because you're five days in, your body starts to shut down. So those first five days, like my stomach starts growling about 9 a.m. if I haven't put anything in it. And then it continues. Now, usually I can just power through. I can ignore my body and I just wait till lunch and kind of, I don't hardly eat breakfast very often. I can maybe go a day. I've kind of been under the weather a little bit, as you can tell in my voice. And so I've been able to avoid some because I'm just not hungry. But you go a week and you have the power to change a rock into some tasty bread. <clears throat> Yesterday I was in Cheyenne and I shot in an archery tournament and we had Olive Garden afterwards. And I was thinking about this bread and this, this message and you sit down at Olive Garden and they just bring that endless baskets of garlic breadsticks. And then whatever meal you get, if it's a nice saucy meal and you're dipping your bread in the sauce, uh, so good, isn't it? Now, can you imagine if you had the power to turn rocks into Olive Garden breadsticks? You could just go, bread. How amazing that would be. <clears throat> we know bread was life in the Jewish community. We break bread at communion every Sunday. It's not just feeding his hunger. He's also trying to tempt Jesus with the power and the authority of community and connectedness. Just turn this rock into bread. Don't have communion with others. Don't have bread at the table. Just have an isolated solo instance of turning rocks into bread and just satisfy your hunger. And Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's not just the food that sustains you. It's the power of community. It's the power of connectedness. It's the power of everything else that we have sustains you in this moment. But he's tempting Jesus in a very powerful way. And he responds back by quoting Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5. He, he goes back with the word. He rebuts him with the very word of God. You're tempting with all these things, Satan, these ways of power and authority, but it's not really what is needed. What's needed is the very word of God. The very love of God is needed more than food itself. So Satan's trying to go after him in the bread basket, and he rejects it. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That old worship leader in heaven who's been cast out is wanting worship to be turned to him. If then... Will worship If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I'll give you all of these people. You worship me, and you'll have authority over the whole planet. He's speaking into the, the parts of us that, that want to know more than maybe we should, or want to be in charge, want to be in control, want to be... And what's interesting is, in the back of your head when you're reading these temptations... All of these things come true for Jesus. He feeds everyone with the loaves and fishes. He becomes the very bread of life <clears throat> that we talk about and celebrate at communion. He has all of the world worshiping him. 
Revelation 5, worship turns to him. Instead of to just the Father, it's to the Son in heaven. Like all of the things that Satan's trying to tempt Jesus with, they all happen. And it all becomes his in the time in which it was supposed to be happening. Satan's trying to jumpstart this and trying to deflect the glory of God away from Jesus and bring it to him. Because Satan knows what's going to happen too. He's trying to put a, a speed bump in this, this power of Jesus in his ministry leading to his death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation. And so you see, Satan takes him to this high place and says, I'll give you all authority over all of this. You'll have authority over it all. But Jesus allowed him to take him there. Like even in the moment of Satan taking Jesus to a place to see in an instant the nations of the world, Jesus allowed that. It was Jesus' power subdued that allowed Satan to even tempt him, to even put him in this place. The satanic version of authority, it means sole oversight and control of your own life. The power to do what you want, when you want, any way you want. It's not just be in charge of everything, it's that I get to make all the decisions for myself. It's, it's again, twisting your identity. You're not in charge of your whole life. You should be seeking Christ, you should be seeking the love of the Father, you should be listening to the Spirit, and He guides your life. You don't get to just do whatever you want. And too often that gets twisted. Well, if you'll just worship me, you can have all of this. If you really want it your way, not just the Burger King way, if you really want it your way, then all you have to do is shift your worship from God to Satan, and you can have it your way. And Jesus responds by quoting to him Deuteronomy 6.13, Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus responds with the word. No, this isn't how this works. I'm not going to have anybody worshiping anybody but God the Father. But eventually, we see in Revelation, there's a shift in heaven. Because he's the lamb who was slain, the angels change and shift their worship to Jesus himself. So eventually he does get the worship, but Satan wants to be the one worshiped. He's trying to put himself in the place of Jesus. That's not going to happen. The last temptation. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan will twist the word of God to us. That's what he does here. So we see this progression of the temptations. Hey, you're hungry? Let's feed you. Hey, don't you want praise and worship and people to like you? I I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the debate among social media stuff. When the social media companies... Instagram and Facebook specifically, they, and YouTube did it as well, they deactivated the like button for a while. So you could post something and then people would like it. You know, do the thumbs up or I don't know, uh, different ones do it different ways. And so you can just, instead of replying or something, you just hit, I like that, that's cool. Well, they were going to do away with it and people lost their mind because everybody wanted to be able to post a picture and see... 5,000, 6,000, 10 million likes. Like everybody, oh, everybody likes this. Everybody is acknowledging me. 
everybody look at me kind of a thing happening. And so whenever they would say, hey, this is hurting, all the psychological studies say this is dangerous for society, dangerous for us, then they would deactivate it for a while, and then there was a mass protest, and they would reactivate it. It's very similar to let everybody turn their worship to you. Like, we're still wired for that. There's still a temptation in needing all the likes. So Satan can't get him in his hunger. He can't get him in that desire to be liked by everyone. And so then he twists the word of God. And see, look what Satan does. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan uses the phrase that Jesus has said against him to say, no, we follow the authority of my father, we follow the authority of the word, and he twists it. He's trying to twist one of the Psalms. Psalm 91, 11 to 12. Satan tries to twist it and say, oh, oh, you like to give me the word back. You're going to fight me with the word of God? Well, I'm going to throw some word of God at you. And we've all encountered this in our lives, in our Christian walk. You will have a conversation with someone saying, hey, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure if this is the way that you should be doing things. I'm not sure if this is the wise thing to do. And, I'm, and you'll quote the word of God to them. Then they'll quote the word of God back to you in a twisted way. Or they'll take it completely out of context <clears throat> to try to prove their point or to try to justify something. They'll twist the word of God to you. And that's what Satan's doing here in The Last Temptation. It's like, well, gosh, he's giving me the it is written. He's giving me the it is written. I'm going to use it against him. And so then Satan, who knows the very word of God, says it's written. He quotes Psalms, out of the Psalms, trying to challenge him. And so then Jesus responds by saying, it is said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Why didn't he rebut back with it is written? He rebutted back with a phrase, it is said. It's preached, it's communicated, it's understood. Jesus himself, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus himself doesn't view the word of God as just a book to be read. It's something to be said, something to be shared, something to be spoken out loud during this time, very oral tradition. So maybe he's referring to in the synagogue, it is said, it's, it's publicly proclaimed, those kinds of things. I'm not, I'm not sure at the nuance of that. But Jesus responds not back with just it is written. He's not playing Satan's games is what I'm trying to get you to see. It's Satan tempts, he says, no, the word of God doesn't say that. I'm following God. And as Satan tries to twist the very word of God, Jesus says, no, it's said. We don't do this. We're not going to tempt God. We're not going to put him to the test. And we have to be careful with that, because I think if we're honest, we're all prone to do that. <coughs> Sorry. I need more mucinex. We have to be careful because that's something that can happen to us. <clears throat> the word of God gets twisted. But in a community, that's, it's better for us to be in a community of people. And I think that's a little bit of what's being drawn out here. <clears throat> it is said. It is preached. It's understood. In the community of God, this is what we do. Now, if you're flying solo and Satan's tempting you and you're not in community talking to other people, <coughs> I 
the very word of God can be twisted in you. But it is said, don't test God. Don't do that. And then he leaves. He departed from him until an opportune time. Satan's not done. Now, does this, is this foreshadowing of the cross? Is this foreshadowing of speaking to the Roman leaders, the Jewish leaders? Is, this, is that what's happening here? I'm not quite sure. Were there many temptations throughout his entire ministry by the enemy? Probably. If he doesn't leave you and me alone, you think he's going to leave Jesus alone? Probably not. The first temptation was about provision. The second temptation was power. And the third was protection. <coughs> things that we often take for granted. Things that we often grab a hold of. Think about the temptations we have in our lives that pull us away from the community of God. Provision, income, security. Those are easy temptations, aren't they? Power, have authority, likes, people around you. It's a pretty big temptation. <clears throat> and protection, safety, security. And if you think about the call of Christ on our lives, we're called to trust him for all of these things. We're called to trust him for our daily provision, <clears throat> for our daily bread. Sound familiar? We're called to trust him for our authority. We don't do things in our own authority, in our own power. We do them in the power of Christ. We're called to trust him for our protection. If he calls you to a dangerous place to share the gospel, and the enemy whispers in your ear, that's a scary place. Be careful. Don't go there. Provision. He calls you to step out in faith to do things for the kingdom. You might lose some stuff. You might not have all the stuff you like. You might not have all your comforts. You might not have, those things might not be there. Power, authority, likes. <clears throat> you might be humbled. You might be brought low. You might not be well received by people. You post something in your faith on a social media account, you might get a lot of dislikes. The temptations of the enemy still exist to this day. This is still the same kind of stuff he does for us all. But Jesus put him in his place in a very powerful way by saying it is written. He quoted back to him the very word of God. But, I like this quote from David Platt, resisting temptation cannot be merely a matter of take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. Often, when even I have, I think in the past, when this passage has been taught, I've usually concluded with Study your Bibles, commit the scriptures to memory, and then whenever Satan tempts you, then rebut it with the very word of God. I think that's still wise to do, to commit the scriptures to memory, to have passages that are your own, to have passages that are precious to you, and when those temptations come, you refute them with the very word of God. I think that's still powerful, but you and I aren't Jesus. You and I aren't the very Son of God. You and I don't have the authority of Christ. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. We can speak that kind of truth. We can say those kinds of things back to Satan, and I think you should. There have been moments when I've had full-on, not conversations, but conversa quoting Scripture and yelling back at the enemy. You won't do this. This isn't happening. No. 
get out of me, flee from me, Satan, get out of my head, quit, knock it off. I've had those conversations. But the only power that I even have to have those conversations is because of my relationship with Jesus. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful that when we're tempted, we just have some Bible memory verses committed, and we just say them, or we write them, or we that we're trying to do it in our authority. You don't have the authority. It is the power of Christ in you that gives you that authority. Our Lord didn't endure this so we would have a model to follow. He did this so we would have mercy when falling. Christ delivers us. He stands in as priest for us, offering both a sacrifice and righteousness for us. You commit those Bible verses and you, you love them, and you cherish them, and you put them on your refrigerator, you put them on your wall, you decorate your house with them, you have them tattooed on your body. Like those, You love those verses because they brought you comfort and power and security and the connection to God, but it's the Word of God points us to our relationship with Him. It informs His love for us so that we draw closer to Him in a personal, deep relationship. That's what you have to have to fight Satan. Just having some verses committed to memory is not how you're going to fight the enemy. It's going to be that those verses are in your brain and in your heart that lead you to the love of God in a deeper way. It's about having that relationship. So that even when you, the, your memory starts to fade or you don't have it or you're so distraught that you just cling to, you just cry out to the Lord. It should lead us to that relationship, not just the memorization. Does that make sense? Because if you just have Bible verses memorized, when the temptation comes, you've had no time of prayer with him, you've had no time in quiet with him, you've had no time reflecting on his love for you, you've been have no time in worship. Not just singing with on Sunday morning, but just awe in awe of God and his provision and all he's done and his love for you, just falling in love with him. Then when the enemy attacks and you just throw some verses, is that really going to get you through? Maybe that moment, but it's your drawing closer to him that's going to get you there. So I thought I'd share some of my favorite verses. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? When I'm feeling pretty low and down and unworthy, um, this verse helps me. Because if, and especially in, when times of struggle and times of temptation, times of I'm not sure what's happening or what's going on, if, if the Lord cares for the birds of the air, um, and they're totally relying on God, then I need to be totally relying on Him as well. You hear me say this one all the time. I'm kind of a broken record with this one. This one I need for me every day. I'm prone to self-deprecation. I'm prone to feeling pretty small and pretty worthless. I'm kind of prone to that. And so I need this reminder every day for me. Because if the enemy is going to tempt me, it's going to be out of my feelings of worthlessness. And that's all the way back to childhood, and it, it's not like it's gone away, but it's not, it doesn't overwhelm me. But I need to constantly tell myself and read this passage over myself daily, or I can get in some pretty dark spaces. Colossians 1.27 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. They don't have to have it all figured out. That the hope of glory is Christ in me, not me. I, this whole section of Colossians is what I read over my children in their dedication when they were kids. Um, this passage is the one that made me realize that uh, my past is in the past and it's washed clean and it's not my effort because I am so self-deprecating that I have to do it all. Um, it was this passage that led me into ministry. So I say it a lot to myself. Um, I love Revelation 5 and 6. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite stories of the Bible <clears throat> because I have had the overwhelming feelings in, in me like, when is this going to end? Like, if you study the world, you study the history of the world and how terrible human beings are to each other, and not just, like, bullying, but, like, the, the, the wholesale destruction of people just for power and gain, and just, we're so wicked to each other. And so if you read the whole section, John sees worship happening and no one can break the seal. No one can break the seal for it all to end. And then here comes the lamb who was slain walking through the crowd and he reaches up and he snatches the scroll from the hand of the father and he breaks it saying it's all done. And then the worship shifts in that moment to Jesus because he's the lamb who was slain. And so this verse says to, to John, weep no more, behold the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven sealed. I love, because there's a part of my heart that the empathetic part of my heart that just I can't stand it when people are in pain I can't stand it when people are hurting it just it it wrecks me I carry the weight and so I have to be constantly reminded that there is a day coming that Jesus is going to make it all right that the lamb who was slain when he comes back he is the line of Judah and he is going to take it all back I long for that day and I'll close with this um, I started rereading mere Christianity about a week and a half ago, I'm going through it kind of slow. I like C.S. Lewis a lot, and I've read Mere, Mere Christianity. Was probably, I think it was, the, it was the first Christian book I ever read. Um, a friend gave it to me, <clears throat> oh gosh, like 25, 24 years ago. He was in Sunday school class with Amber and I in, at the church in Indiana, and it was the first kind of intellectual book that I ever given. I've been given devotions and stuff, but it was the first book that stretched my brain a little bit. And so I've been rereading it, and this popped up. It's in, I think it's in like chapter 11 or so. Um, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a sunhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but because bright, it becomes bright because the sun shines on it. God doesn't love us because we're good. God doesn't love us because we can fight the temptation of Satan. He doesn't love us because you have all of the badges that show your memory verses. And he doesn't love, he doesn't love you because you've committed whole books of the Bible to memory. Those are all good and great things to point you to God. But he loves you because you're a reflection of his love. We're called to be shining lights of Christ. And we're very broken and twisted and... And that's why Paul says that right now we see dimly and someday we'll see fully. Like we can't even be in the presence of a holy God right now. And we can't, we don't really have it all figured out. It's like we're seeing in a fog a little bit. But there's a day coming when we will be completely 
expose the love of God and will shine bright just like he does. So for now, to fight temptation, yes, commit verses to memory. Yes, have the word of God in your heart and in your head. Be ready when Satan tempts you to say, it is written, this isn't how I'm supposed to live. It is written that God loves, it is written that I shouldn't be doing it. Yes, throw all that back in Satan's face and push him away. But at the end of the day, all of that should lead us to the relationship with Jesus that we, we need. That's what's going to sustain you. In the dark moments when it's all unraveling in your life, having Bible verses are great committed to memory. But it's going to be that loving relationship and feeling the arms of your Heavenly Father wrap around you in the deepest pains. You're not called to have it all figured out. You're not called to be perfect. You're not called to fight Satan on your own. Be a reflection of Christ. Your relationship with Jesus is what's going to fight back the temptation. Not just singing songs of worship in the car. Not just doing a daily devotion. Not just having Bible verses committed to memory. Those are all great disciplines. But if they're just part of the task list, it's going to fail you. You must have that deep abiding relationship with him. Do you love to just sit in the presence of God? That would be the question I would have for you. What are barriers in the way? What are practices you have that you need to re-engage with? But most importantly, what are you doing to spend time with him? You have to carve out parts of your day to spend time with him so that you can grow in your love for him and you'll feel his love. And when you feel his love, Satan has no foothold in you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had together in your word and thank you for the amazing message of confidence in your word and in you that we see in these temptations. I pray, Lord, that we would see these moments where you fought back Satan with your very word as calls for us to be closer to you. Yes, we should have your word committed to memory. Yes, we should have it written on our hearts and stored in our minds. But I pray that those verses that we commit to memory would bring us closer to you, not just winning a prize. The goal is for us to spend time with you. The goal of our lives is to grow closer to you. That we would enjoy you here, now, and forever in heaven. Help us to trust you. Help us to lean on you. Help us to cling to you when it hurts. You're the one that will help us defeat the enemy. You and you alone. We love you. Help us. We can't do it alone. You don't ask us to. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.